Hello, everyone, and welcome to In the Spotlight, Goodspeed Musicals podcast, where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. I'm Michael Fling, one of your hosts here on the artistic staff at Goodspeed, and I'm pleased to be joined by my fellow bohemian artist, Annika Chapin, Goodspeed's resident dramaturg and artistic associate. Hi, Annika. Hi, Michael. I'd love to be called a bohemian. I'm not totally sure it applies in this particular situation. I don't think it really applies to either of us, if we're being honest, but it still felt like at least on theme enough that I could get away with it. (laughs) Oh, I, I love it. I love it. Aspirational bohemians. So would you like to remind us what the clue was about what show we'll be diving into this week? Yes. So what I said last episode was that this was the show that necessitated the start of the ticket lottery, uh, which is the lottery system by which cheap tickets that are partial visibility in front front row and all that stuff um, are chosen out of a hat instead of first come first serve. And that show that necessitated that is Rent by Jonathan Larson because they started these cheap tickets that were available for $20 and so many people were taking them that they were sleeping on the streets and lined up for hours and it became sort of a hazard. So they switched over to the ticket lottery and a new ticketing system was born. Scarily similar to uh, what Benny's trying to get rid of in the East Village at the beginning of Rent. Ooh, a very, very good point. And a solid transition to the speed test. Hudson's floor wax doesn't matter. 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 Where we put a minute on the clock and I'll do my my best to summarize Rent in a minute. Which after I, after I did so well with Great Comet, I feel like I might be able to be okay with Rent, but we'll see. I don't know. See, I think the thing is the shows that you know better are actually harder for you to do in a minute. So I think you're not going to do well on this, but let's see. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, <laughs> I have no faith in you, <laughs> is what I'm saying. <laughs> okay, let's, let's go for it. Do you have a minute on the clock? Um, I have my phone here and uh, ready? Three, two, one, plot. Okay, so we think it's 1989, but we're not sure. Basically, uh, Mark and Rent, uh, Mark and Roger, not Rent, Mark and Roger uh, live in. Uh, this really weird loft apartment on the, in the East Village, um, and their former roommate slash friend Benny is going to come and collect a year's worth of rent. Um, um, okay, so uh, basically, then their friend Collins is going to come over. He gets beat up. He meets Angel, who is a, uh, a, dra- a drag queen uh, who uh, saves him a little bit and takes him to an aid support group. Uh, we've got Mimi, who is um, a local dancer slash stripper, who uh, gets involved with Roger and uh, it's all in preparation for uh, Mark's ex-girlfriend Maureen's big performance art piece because they want to evict a lot of these people from these places on the Lower East Side Um, and it's a year in the life of these friends. Uh, A lot of them have AIDS and uh, Angel dies. It's very sad. (laughs) (laughs) That's not too bad actually. Not too bad. (laughs) Not terrible. Um yeah that's basically it i mean it's it's a, a a year about all of these characters and their how they interact with each other and uh angel does die of aids in the middle of act two um and we think that mimi's gonna die at the end but surprise surprise she stays alive yeah should she i'm not sure but <laughs> we'll get into it we'll get into it we'll get into it <laughs> and that brings us to why god why why 
today. Where we talk about the big idea that governs the narrative of the show and why the author wanted to tell this story. And I, I think for uh, for Rent, it's pretty clear that the idea is no day but today, that you should live life to the fullest. And if the dying can find the courage to live life, uh, we all can. Um, and I think it's interesting, I, as I was revisiting it, for a piece that is confronting a very cynical society and is in and of itself quite cynical about a lot of things uh, and is for an often cynical audience, it really wears its heart on its sleeve and is incredibly optimistic given like it's, it's like beaming with optimism. Uh, so, but Annika, what do you, what do you think? What do you think the show is, is trying to say? I think you got it. I think that's it. I think it's perfectly it. Uh, there's a real uplifting message of connect to the people around you, connect to life, no matter how much time you have. Yeah. There was a really, um, there's a quote from Jonathan Larson on one of his, like show notes or like notes that he was sending along with drafts or something that I, I pulled the quote. It was the last thing I read as I prepped and I was like, Oh, this is actually really great. And I wanted to include it in the section because I, I don't know about you, but as I was like, you know, li listening to the show and reading it and watching and things. And I, it felt like it so speaks to right now in so many ways with the things it's talking about. And so I, I was really moved by it multiple times as I, as I, dealt with it and revisited it. But <clears throat> the quote is, uh, quote, in these dangerous times where it seems that the world is ripping apart at the seams, we can all learn how to survive from those who stare death squarely in the face every day. And we should reach out to each other and bond as a community rather than hide from the terrors of life. I just thought that was so, I was like, wow, what a 2020, uh, an attack on 2020. <laughs> yeah. So with that, Annika, why don't you take us back to before and tell us about the origins of Rent. We can never go back to before. Okay, so Rent really begins with the opera La Boheme, um, which is written by Giacomo Puccini. It's a very, very famous opera. Um, it was written between 1893 and 1895 with an Italian libretto by Luigi Illica. I hope I'm pronouncing this right, and Giuseppe Giacosa, uh, based on a book called Scenes de la Vie de Bohème by Henri Murger, which was written in 1851. And this was basically, uh, it started out as a series of short stories that Murger had written for a literary magazine about a group of artist friends who were living in Paris in the uh, 1830s and 1840s. So it was written later than that. Um, and it was a little bit tricky because it was these these stories for the magazine that then were turned into a play by Merger. And then once that was successful, Merger adapted it into a book that was published. So um, what's interesting is that the book was in the public domain at the later part of the 19th century, but the play was not. So all the official stories later are about how Puccini adapted the book, which was in the public domain, not the play, but it seems pretty clear that his inspiration was really this play. Uh, so Merger had written these stories, adapted it into this thing. Uh, Puccini, who had been a moderately successful composer at that point, um, who had also lived in Milan as an impoverished student and was inspired by those days. Um, so he had seen this play and he was really moved by it and wanted to adapt it into an opera. Um, and actually some of the details of his own life, like turning one herring into a dinner for four people, uh, ended up in the opera. So it was kind of a mishmash of 
um, this original source material and of Puccini's life, which is interesting because Rant was also a mishmash of original source material and some stuff from Jonathan Larson's life. But um, just as Jonathan Larson didn't embark on his road to Rent alone, which we'll get into a little bit later, Puccini also had company, um, although the circumstances were slightly different. So in 1893, Puccini realized that the composer Leon Cavallo had also started an operatic adaptation of the same source material. And Leon Cavallo had started it first. So he felt that Puccini should stop writing his version, sort of back away from it. And he claimed that he had shown Puccini his uh, libretto, but Puccini said he didn't. Um, but since the original book was in the public domain, neither of them really had to stop because public domain means you don't have to get the rights. You can kind of do whatever you want to. Um, so P Puccini kept writing his version and he said of the Leon Cavallo version, let him compose, I will compose and the audience will decide. So Puccini's opera pre premiered in 1896 in Turin. It was conducted by Toscanini, who's a, obviously a huge name in opera. And it was an almost immediate success with performances worldwide. Um, Leon Cavallo's version premiered a year later and has faded into obscurity. Wah, wah. Um, and Bohème is now massively popular, produced around the world. Still, it's the fourth most performed opera in the whole wide world. And if you've never seen La Bohème, which I highly recommend, it's a wonderful opera. It's really fun, if you know Rent, to look at what is in Bohème that is obviously now in Rent in a very different form. The plot of La Bohème concerns these two artists who live in a tiny, bad apartment in Paris. Rodolfo is a poet who shares this apartment with Marcello, who is a painter. In the opening scene, it's winter and it's cold, so they burn Rodolfo's manuscript to stay warm. Does this sound familiar? Uh, Rodolfo falls in love with Mimi, who's a poor seamstress who lives uh, nearby, who suffers from consumption. She comes asking him to light her candle. They have two friends, Colleen, who is a philosopher, which obviously becomes Tom Collins in Rent. And a lot of Colleen's arc concerns getting and then selling a coat. He has this beautiful song, uh, Goodbye to His Coat, in order to buy medicine for Mimi. And Another friend of theirs is Chouinard, who is a musician who has money at the beginning of the piece because he was paid by a wealthy Englishman to kill the man's neighbor's parrot. So obviously, uh, just as Colleen became Tom Collins, Chouinard became Angel Dumat Chouinard. I was gonna say, that's Angel's last yeah, name. Yeah, <laughs> right? I mean, it's actually really fun to go in and see all these little connections that you don't even realize. And might not even have thought of like that it's kind of weird that Mimi only has a candle, but you know, in 1989, like she probably has a flashlight, but whatever. She's poor and in the East Village. She only got a candle. She it's only got a candle. It's a nod. <laughs> it's a nod. Um, and there's a whole song called uh, about her cold hands, which obviously is also a lyric in the show. Um, and then of course there's Musetta, who is Marcello's ex, who's very attractive and very flirtatious, who frequently cheats. Um, although not not with women in Bohème. And I always find it kind of interesting that actually Jonathan Larson picked Musetta's waltz to be the, the theme that he used the most prominently in Rent because there are songs in Bohème that are about love, are about uh, Mimi and Rodolfo meeting, um, all these moments that are a little bit more emotional. Um, but Musetta's waltz is actually the, the equivalent of the beginning of Take Me at, or Leave Me, which is 
Musetta singing about how she's really attractive and everybody likes to look at her when she walks down the street and it's not really her fault if she's beautiful. So it's, even though it's a beautiful melody and it does sound like it has that emotional heft that Jonathan Larson uses it for, it's actually kind of dramaturgically a weird choice because it's it's just a charm song in Bohem. It really has no resonance in terms of love or all of the the things that he likes to write about. And interestingly, I thought this fact was kind of interesting. Rent had its official off-Broadway opening on January 25th, 1996, one week shy of the 100th anniversary of the first performance of La Boheme, which is 52,549,920 minutes in Rent speak. So the idea to turn La Boheme into a musical actually started with a man by the name of Billy Aronson, who thought that an updated version of La Boheme uh, was really interesting. And he approached Playwrights Horizons uh, artistic director at the time, Ira Weitzman, who recommended Jonathan Larson. Shout out to Ira Weitzman. He's awesome. And Larson immediately loved the idea. And basically, the, they set about this route of translating the characters who were suffering from tuberculosis in La Boheme to suffering from AIDS and from 19th century Paris to New York's East Village in the late 1980s. So they're, in their initial development, uh, Billy wrote three songs uh, that remained largely untouched for a long time in development, which are the songs Rent, I Should Tell You, and Santa Fe. So a, a bit about Jonathan Larson before we, we get too much further. Jonathan Larson was, is, a, is a very interesting character, and a lot of the story of Rent, the creation of the musical Rent, uh, is biographical to Jonathan Larson because he spent so much time developing it and died at such a young age. So to understand so much of the influence of the show Rent, it is important to dig into his biography. But to top line it all, he wanted to marry the MTV generation with musical theater to find the intersection of the traditional musical and the visceral thrill of rock. So eventually Jonathan was very emotionally attached to the material and wanted it to reflect the life he was living with his friends many of whom had been diagnosed with AIDS. He and Billy eventually parted ways um, as they, they saw the project differently, very amicably, and he is properly credited, and there's no hard feelings about any of that from what we can tell, and there are some hard feelings from some other creators that we'll get into later. Uh, but uh, Jonathan sent his initial drafts to many big-name producers that we've discussed on the podcast before and would not be a shocking list of names to... Uh, many of our listeners. Um, but then after strolling by a new space being renovated for New York Theatre Workshop, he sent the materials to the artistic director there, who immediately responded with his interest in the piece and in Jonathan. This led to a reading at New York Theatre Workshop, which kind of went horribly. Uh, it was way too long, it didn't seem to have much of a story, and everything seemed pretty bleak for the, outlet, for the future of the show. Uh, and Larson ends up taking the show to some other theaters, uh, even though New York Theatre Workshop was dedicated to making sure at some point it was ready to produce, but they couldn't really shepherd and support financially a lot of the work that it needed. And just side note, um, I thought this was really interesting. So Jim Nicola, who's the artistic director of New York Theatre Workshop, they had just moved into their new space and they really, really wanted to find a show that spoke to their location, which is in the East Village. So when Rent had come along, it did seem like kind of kismet to them because it was exactly what they had been looking for, which was something that um, connected with their 
the people around them, with the neighborhood. Um, so they really wanted to keep it. So uh, Jonathan Larson actually received a lot of grants uh, in his life as a, a struggling artist. And he was awarded a prestigious Richard Rogers development grant, which paid for a workshop of rent at New York Theater Workshop. Uh, and Jim Nicola, who Annika just mentioned as the artistic director, recommended Michael Greif, an up and coming director, to help lead the development of the piece and this uh, workshop. And so this developmental production at New York Theater Workshop is a was a huge success in a lot of ways uh, and gets commercial producers Jeffrey Seller and Kevin McCollum on board. Um, but Michael Greif had just been appointed to the, be the new artistic director at La Jolla Playhouse out in California and was really concerned about his ability to continue to develop the show and the piece, which everyone recognized still needed a lot of work and a lot of changes. So then enter Lynn Thompson, a professor at NYU who was hired as a dramaturg and helped Jonathan deepen and refine the piece after this developmental workshop. Uh, and she encouraged him to write background stories for all of the characters and really specify the story beyond uh, what she deemed an initial uh, occasional cartoonish quality about the characters and the piece. Um, but as they were heading into a full production at New York Theatre Workshop, Jonathan had rewritten a ton of the show um, at with the, with the help of Lynn and with her guidance. And... A lot of the show had gotten a lot better, but a lot of the team thought that the show had gotten a lot worse. So there was tons of apprehension about actually going forward. Uh, but after a lot of hard conversations internally between the commercial producers and the artistic team at New York Theater Workshop and Jonathan, and uh, even some help from one of Jonathan's mentors, Stephen Sondheim, uh, he continued to rewrite and they pressed forward with the show. While they were in tech rehearsals for the New York Theater Workshop uh, full production, Larson began to have some health issues, um, pains in the chest, difficulty breathing, and he ended up going to the hospital twice, actually, once where he was misdiagnosed with food poisoning and um, another time that he just thought he had a bad case of the stomach flu. And he ended up taking a day off of rehearsals and there was their day off and uh, he came to the theater for the final dress rehearsal and even had an interview with the New York Times that night. Uh, the team, it had been a long day, and the team elected to do notes the next morning rather than late that night. And from what we know, he went home, put on a kettle of water for tea, and based on the autopsy, his aorta opened up and he probably fell unconscious within about 15 seconds and died. And everyone was, of course, shocked by the news. Uh, and the next day, they didn't perform the, what would have been the opening night performance, but instead they did a sing-through uh, where John Larson's family was there and uh, many people that he knew, and it became this mournful celebration of Larson and the piece. So the show garnered a rave review in the New York Times, and suddenly they couldn't sell tickets fast enough. They ended up extending. I mean, it was wild, crazy business and selling out the rest of the run in a subsequent extension. So the conversation became about next steps and what to do with this show. And uh, Larson really prided himself on being a creature of downtown art. Uh, and so there was a lot of conflict about whether or not an off-Broadway run or a more experimental space type run might be what's best for the show. But the commercial producers ended up deciding that Rent could cater to a larger audience than a small off-Broadway space, 
and they chose the rundown Niederlander Theater on 41st Street, and that became the new home of Rent. The show continued to need changes, and the team says that they only proceeded with what they thought Jonathan would have approved of, utilizing former drafts and stage directions where they felt it was needed. Uh, and there had been so much collaboration that they really felt they knew where the trajectory of conversations with Jonathan would have gone and acted accordingly. But it really is an overnight sensation. And there was a there's a great quote in that I found too that said, the musical theater has many classics and cult flops, but few phenomena. And Rent was a phenomena. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's the kind of thing we we didn't see again until Hamilton, really. I think that's a fair statement. I mean, I I, I think that's super fair. So when the show moved to Broadway, it went to the Niederlander Theater, which had been pretty derelict, uh, and they cleaned it up, but they didn't clean it up entirely. They wanted it to be sort of in the vein of the show's style, which is kind of run down, you know, not, not a fan fancy commercial place, just something that looks like these people could potentially be living there. Um, And it was a massive hit. The show was nominated for 10 Tony Awards, but it only won four, which is kind of interesting. Best Musical, Best Book, Best Original Score, and Best Performance by a Featured Actor in a Musical. And then it won the Pulitzer Prize. And it ran for 12 years. It had a 12-year run, which makes it the 11th longest-running Broadway show. And it grossed over $280 million, which is pretty amazing considering the original capitalization was only $3 million. So again, massive, 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 massive hit. And I mean, to go into how many places it went to after that, to the tours, et cetera, I w- we would just be here all day because it's basically been everywhere in the world that does musicals. In 2005, there was a major movie adaptation directed by Chris Columbus uh, with a screenplay by Stephen Chbosky, and it was not a success, I would say. They also made the peculiar choice of using almost the entire original cast from the Broadway version, but it was now pretty much a decade after they had played those roles, so they were a little bit long in the tooth to be playing the, the early 20s Bohemians they had played before and um it just wasn't really very well received although it is beloved of michael fling okay beloved is a strong word (laughs) i I don't hate it i think is what i would say and i would also say special shout out to cory booker's girlfriend rosario dawson for taking over the role of mimi and uh, my hot take there would be like i think she sounds great on that recording and also tracy toms stepping into the role of joanne which i also very much appreciate what she brings to that role And in a special set of circumstances, they also recorded the final performance on Broadway of the show, which is a a special time capsule to go back and look at many people ending up in that production and closing the show, including Renee Elise Goldsberry as Mimi and Adam Cantor as Mark. The other major thing about Rent, they did do, uh, there was a brief off-Broadway revival uh, at New World Stages that uh, did not last very long, around 2011, I think. And then it was adapted into one of the live musical productions on television on Fox in the beginning of 2019. Again, not super successfully, uh, but that it has continued, obviously, to have a life beyond this original production. There are still tours that go around to this day. I mean, it's still quite a popular show. Yeah, it is one of those shows that, although it was a mega success and is a fantastic show, Uh, does not really get removed from its original context very well or successfully. It's kind of trapped in amber 
from the time it was written uh, in an interesting way, like like a chorus line, which is similarly about that time and that place. And uh, you, these are kind of odd ones to be stuck in history in that way, but it gets a little stuck in history. Considering they're supposed to feel so contemporary and current for the time that they were released in, I think you're right to point out that they've been trapped in those times. So with that, Annika, why don't you take us into the words and show us what's inside one song, Glory. What's inside? Everyone wants to know what's inside. So for this episode, we are going to dive into the song One Song Glory from Rent. Again, this is a pretty stacked show. There's a lot of good songs, so it's hard to pick, but uh, this is a really great one and a really good character showcase in a, in a show that doesn't always uh, go to internal. So if you haven't heard it yet, I am using the original Broadway cast recording. Um, funnily enough, you could listen to the film. It would be the same singer, Adam Pascal, uh, but I'm looking at the Broadway one. So if you want to go listen to it now, uh, come on back and then I'll be here waiting. Or if you feel like you know it already, then uh, let's dive on in. So although this song feels like it's very early in the show, it's actually the seventh song. Um, there's a lot of songs in the show. It goes fast. However, it's really the first moment that everything slows down and we get to spend some time with a character alone. Um, and although I'm not sure that I would say that Roger is the only protagonist, I'm not sure if I would say he is the protagonist of Rent. He's certainly a protagonist. Uh, and this qualifies as an I want song, uh, the I want song of the show, I would say. So before I get into this, I just want to say too that this is going to be relevant a little bit later, but the dramaturg Lynn Thompson in her lawsuit against the Larson family, again, we'll chat with, about this later, said that one of the things she took credit for was this song used to be a song that was about Roger having writer's block and that she suggested that it be something a little bit more optimistic and a little bit more um, reaching. And I think that was a good change. That's a good example of like what a dramaturg does often, well, you know, suggests that the tone of the existing song is perhaps not the right tone. Anyway, put a pin in that, we'll come back to it. So at this point, we already know a fair amount because there's been a lot of information given to us right off the top. We already know that Roger is a musician, that he hasn't played his guitar in a year, that he's been in rehab uh, for half a year that he hasn't been going out and that he's been struggling with writing this one song. And we also know because Mark tells us really right before he leaves, right before this song happens, that Roger has AIDS uh, given to him by his girlfriend, April, who told him this in a note uh, that she left right before she killed herself. So there's clearly a lot that Roger is dealing with, a lot that he's uh, facing emotionally and he's put this pressure on himself now that he's been given a, a death sentence really to to write one song that is going to be his legacy that's going to be the kind of the thing that he leaves behind so this is him singing about that song so let's start listening <laughs> I always 
start with the musical vamp before the singing. But we get a lot right off the bat from whatever the introduction of a song is. It's telling us something. So although he's been playing the guitar, this is not him playing the guitar. Uh, it's easy to, to think that when you're listening to the song that he would just be basically playing around, playing a few notes. But this is not that. He's, he's a musician whose problem is that he's trying to write a song that he's having trouble writing. And this song is about that song. But this song is actually a non-diegetic internal song. This is not Roger writing a song. This is a song in which Roger is singing about having trouble writing a song. A lot of layers here. And yes, it is a little bit ironic that he's singing an, an, a great emotional song about how he can't write a great emotional song, musical theater irony. But this great vamp right at the top really changes the tone of the show up until this moment. Um, the show really starts at top energy. We dive right in. Mark gives us an introduction. They sing Rent. We meet Collins. Collins gets beaten up. Collins meets Angel. We learn about the family. Your family's calling. We know about Maureen. Maureen left Mark. She's let, like, there's so much that happens and there's so many characters and stuff just being thrown at us. And it's just been just energy, 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 energy. So Mark leaves and we get this vamp and it's just immediately slows us down and makes us take a step back. It puts us into the mindset that Roger is now in being alone, which is something that's been so rare. And it's kind of rare in this world. I mean, they all have roommates. They're all with people all the time. So we get this lovely thing. And it's also kind of interesting because it's an electric guitar, a single electric guitar with a ton of reverb. So it's both Roger-like because we know he plays the guitar, but also, as we said, not him playing the guitar. And there's something about that reverb they have on there. It almost sounds like it's coming from some angelic other realm. This is just this guitar that suddenly starts playing. The reverb adds the sense that there's lots of empty space around it. It's kind of an interesting trick you can do with echo. Um, if you've ever seen Floyd Collins, which hinges a, a great deal on um, a man trapped inside a cave that's either a full cave system or um, a claustrophobic little rock thing. That, that is a show that uses echo very, very beautifully. But this echo just emphasizes Roger being alone, uh, both in the, in the house, but also kind of emotionally, that he's, he's facing death. He's facing an afterlife. Um, he's going through a lot of things. He's pondering his own mortality. So there's something very appropriate about having this sort of one melancholy instrument that's that's echoing almost endlessly. Just it's sort of creating this larger zone. And we get those little four notes, those very simple four notes. And then it's kind of almost repeated uh, with the same relationship to each other, but starting in a slightly different place. So we get the sense that Roger knows the core of what he wants to write, but just can't quite figure out where to place it. You know, it's a, it's a similar sound for each of these little repetitions of these four notes, slight variations, um, but it's never quite landing in the way. One song, glory, one song, 
Before I go, glory, one song to leave behind. So we get a little peek into Roger's mind here after we get this kind of emotional vamp introduction. These aren't full thoughts that he's having. They're just snippets a little bit. He's sort of strung together. It it feels a little bit stream of consciousness, both in melody and lyric. Um, Just these little fragments, one song to leave behind, glory. He's still thinking about this, maybe obsessing a little bit, but he's definitely not coherently planning or actively writing a song. And already we have something that's going to happen a lot over the course of the song, which is the repetition of the word glory, which is given the exact same melody as one song. So right off the top, we're, we're told by him with this melody, this very simple, just two note melody, that one song equals glory. That is the same thing for him. He has to write this one song and that will equal glory, that will equal his legacy, um, that will equal the thing that, that lives beyond him. And glory is kind of an interesting choice for that too, because it's not legacy. He doesn't say legacy. He doesn't say I will be remembered. He specifically goes for this word that can mean many things. It can mean both fame. It can mean something sort of transcendently beautiful, but it also has it as a tone of an angel is glorious. You know, it, it has a sort of old religious sense of something that is beautiful and, and large. So it's kind of the perfect word to sum up what he's looking for, which is something that transcends the physical world, transcends time almost. Something goes a little bit beyond. Find one song, one last refrain, glory from the pretty boy front man who wasted opportunity. And we start to get something a little bit new. He's developing this a little bit. Um, He's adding some stuff about who he was before. He's really in a contemplative moment. He's left alone to think. He's clearly his this whole, he's had a lot of revelations in the past few months. And I think we can hear that in this line, the pretty boy front man who wasted opportunity. It's, there's a real bitterness to it. I think Roger is a very different person to that person, the pretty boy front man. And there's something sort of contemptuous about that phrase, pretty boy front man. It just sounds like someone shallow. Sounds like someone who's in it for the wrong reasons, maybe. It's just sort of, you know, the, the lead singer of a band. It's not about being a great musician. It was, he was the pretty boy front man who wasted opportunity. Um, and it's not specific about what exactly we, that opportunity was, but I think that's, we're not supposed to know that exactly. What he means is he had life. He had all of this life ahead of him and he just didn't really do anything with it. So he's kind of angry at that earlier version of himself that doesn't try to do what he's doing now, which is make something that's going to last because he doesn't really have to. Um, I also love that the second instrument to come into this song after this guitar is the percussion, the drums, which are summoned by this memory almost it's it's almost like in remembering the band leader that roger was this ghost band has come to join him one song he had the world at his feet glory in the eyes of a young girl a young girl find glory be 
on the cheap colored lights One song before the sun sets Glory on another empty life It's kind of a big chunk there. Um, but it's, again, it's progressing. We get this sort of, the band is coming in a little bit more. Um, and it's still that fragmented mixture of things, a mixture of memories and emotional moments um, talking about April, kind of the only time he'll ever do this. Presumably he's talking about April when he says a young girl who of course is his ex who committed suicide. And it's interesting because there's a full phrase there. Um, one of the uses of the word glory here is glory in the eyes of a young girl. So he's actually hinting at what he will realize later uh, that he will find his glory, he will find the song that he's looking for in love. That's the place where he's going to find it. But he doesn't quite sit on that for very long here. And then we get more of that contempt for the world he had been living in. He had the world at his feet, he says, but it sounds, it all sounds kind of surfacey, cheap colored lights, you know, doesn't, doesn't sound real or lasting. And now clearly he's, he's trying to bridge the gap between a meaningful life while he doesn't have a ton of time. And we get those glories popping in there, sort of coming sometimes even between full sentences, uh, like an insistent reminder that never quite leaves his head. And I think we all have those things where you're sort of, there's something really uh, panicky or anxiety provoking, a larger scale thing that just will just constantly be in your head, um, putting that pressure on you. Time flies, time part and also just shout out to adam pascal who is just the perfect rock star i mean i think a lot of the success of this show was that they cast it originally with really authentic people and adam pascal was certainly that he was a he was kind of a rock singer he was from a different zone apparently he had to learn how to sing with his eyes open to do the show and his his voice is just so strong and um resonant here it just really gets does so much so anyway so after he sings the phrase time dies it kind of unleashes this full emotional rocky belt which i think it's kind of interesting because the first time he's actually said dies he's the first time he's said death he's referenced death overtly he said before you know time is running out things like that but like this is he can't avoid this time dies uh and of course that's what makes him get to this place this feels kind of frustrated maybe angry definitely a different tenor than what he's been singing before which has been much more thoughtful and, and melancholy and now this gets the full band behind him they kind of click on in it's that great rock sound it's like he's actually unleashed the music by being his full emotional self but he doesn't really even realize that there again this is kind of roger's problem he's so close to a lot of this but he just doesn't have quite the equipment to realize what he's doing yet he's not he's a he's not a very thoughtful person who's now put in a position where i think he's become a very thoughtful person he has to be but it's a little bit new to him um and by thoughtful i don't mean like kind i mean like 
contemplative. And I love this moment too, because I think this also shows us who he can be as a rock star. This sounds like a rock star singing. This sounds momentarily like a rock concert with his band behind him. It just kind of sails together. It comes together in this really great moment. So it's both true to the moment because Roger's, you know, dealing with the the many, many emotions that he's facing given this crazy situation, this terrible thing that he has to go through now. But it's also like a melancholy look at what might have been if Roger hadn't gotten sick. This version of Roger, this rock singing guy who's hitting these amazing notes with these band behind him and it just sounds awesome could have been his future potentially but he's probably not going to get that because he's probably not going to live that long so in some ways it's sort of showing us what could have been and that makes it almost worse that he's having this moment find glory in a song that rings true truth like a blazing fire an eternal flame. Fine. I always think this part is so interesting because I just, I don't buy these lyrics coming from him. Truth like a blazing fire and internal flame. It sounds like a bunch of different rock songs. It almost sounds like he's gotten a little bit stuck in the band world from the moment right before. And now he's writing songs like he's in a band, you know, something a little bit more superficial, sounds good, doesn't mean a ton. So we've heard stuff like this in rock songs before. I mean, there are songs called, you know, is this burning an eternal flame? Like this is a, this is not a new thing he's singing here. And I think it's a little too, too much. And I think that's kind of on purpose because he's about to switch tack again. One song, a song about love, glory, from the soul of a young man, a young man. This is the thing that feels most truthful here. Roger is a young man. We get this repetition of a young man. After, of course, he says earlier, young girl, it's kind of an echo of that. But this one kind of hits a little harder because he's young. He's young. He's going to die much, much too early. And he has to do something that it really isn't fair to ask of a young person. Create something so truthful, an art piece, so truthful, so wise that it lives beyond him. But he doesn't have that wisdom yet because he doesn't have that life yet and he never will. So he's, he's trying to condense an entire life's worth of art potentially into one song. But of course, you can't really do that because you have to live life in order to have the experience and the wisdom and the stuff to be able to put into that song. So in this tiny moment, we get a sense of why the song has all these pieces crashing into each other. These fragments of memories, frustrations, the, pu uh, the pushing need for glory. He doesn't really have the tools yet to write what he knows he needs to write because he doesn't have the experience yet. It's a ton of pressure and there's something ironic and deeply unfair about it. But what's interesting is that he knows even now that the song will be about love because that is the eternal thing that he does know, that he has known. You know, he has been with April in what seems like it was a, a true and deep relationship. So um, kind of an interesting mix of self-awareness and not self-awareness from Roger. But that fits where he is, right? He's dealing with a lot of stuff. Find the one song before the virus takes hold Glory like a sunset One song to redeem this empty life Time flies 
and now we're back to this talk of redeeming an empty life. He's very hard on himself. <laughs> but then the song goes to a much darker place when he when he really almost screams this and then no need to endure anymore. It's high. It's it's you can hear it's hard on his voice. It's it's not placed beautifully. It's really kind of almost just the screaming um pure visceral moment. And again, this mention of death. And this is the first time we hear that Roger him, finds life itself hard to endure or that he potentially welcomes death. But having this at the very end makes it feel like maybe he's ending the song in a very dark place. Maybe he's struggled through this, this all of the stuff that he's fighting with and he's come down to the place that his girlfriend clearly was, which is that it's better not to be alive. Uh, maybe, I don't know. I mean, it's certainly closer to that than he was at the beginning of the song, but it's, it's pretty, it's pretty dark and we've gotten that unleashed high note with them and then no need to endure anymore. But I love that there's that little music at the end that just brings the hint of a more optimistic sound, that little chime that almost happens. It's like the music wants him to have a little hope because of course, what's about to happen is that Mimi is, is going to knock on his door, like right now, basically. So from the depths of his brooding and his thinking that, you know, there's nothing to endure, that maybe death is something to be longed for because then he doesn't have to endure this. And part of what he's enduring clearly is this sort of self-punishment that he's put on himself, this pressure to find this one thing, to leave a lasting legacy behind. Uh, but what he's about to find is exactly the thing that he doesn't think he's looking for, which is a new relationship, a new love, um, but but which in fact is going to be exactly the answer to what he is looking for. He's going to fall in love. He's going to find Mimi as, as he's going to say later, she's going to be the song all along. She's going to be the thing. Just love is going to be the legacy. So over the course of this song, which is not terribly long, we we really get a beautiful portrait of someone who has been forced by circumstance into a position they never really thought they would be. In using these kind of vocabulary of rock music, the guitar, the having the sort of drums kick in at one point, breaking into this larger um, full bands uh, moment, that kind of high belt. Uh, Jonathan Larson has very cleverly used Roger's vocabulary while also having song that reflects Roger while also not having it be actually the song that Roger is writing. It's such an interesting mix of things, but it's a great, great song and we really care about him. This song really provides an emotional anchor for us in amongst all this crazy, wonderful chaos of the beginning of the show. This song is the, is the place that we can slow down get this kind of melancholy moment with Roger, get this little glimpse of what he was, potentially what he could be, and um, understand who he is, where he's coming from, and really feel for him. And of course, now we're super invested. When Mimi comes in, we, we want nothing more than for something good to happen to him. And it's actually going to get us a little bit more because he's kind of a jerk to Mimi sometimes. So I think now that we know what he's suffering, it makes it easier for us to really understand what he's going through and why he's being kind of unkind to her. Not that I'm saying anybody should date tortured artists. It can be very difficult, but um, in this case, meh, if maybe if they look like Adam Pascal and sing like Adam Pascal and uh, reveal this kind of emotional depth, we give them a pass. Don't give them a pass. Date good kind people, but you know what I mean.
And that brings us to one of our favorite segments, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? Where we talk about some of the internal and external forces that cause issues for the show. So I think we should start with the question of when does Rent take place and its general era, and does it subsequently, because of that, feel dated? Does it feel so rooted in an 80s, 90s kind of time that it feels a little outdated now. I, I have always kind of known that Rent is supposed to take place in 1989, but I think that was new information to you, Annika. Correct me if I'm wrong. It blew my mind. I did not know it was set in 1989. So how do you, how do we contend with these pieces that seem to be so specific, but yet aren't, I mean, they're talking about emails and cell phones and they're, you know, they're poor artists. Maureen doesn't have a cell phone. Like they're, this is the new advent of some of that. So uh, how do you think we should contend with that? Well, it's interesting. I think when you're making a show, no matter what you're dealing with, you have to face the question of, do you want your audience to pay attention to that? Or do you not want your audience to pay attention to that? And by that, it can be anything. It can be the specificity of time and place. It can be things like the logistics of travel. Um, whatever it is, you either want your audience specifically to notice it, or you want to kind of create a fuzzy realm where you say to the audience, don't even worry about it, basically. You're not supposed to be focusing on this anyway. Um, and I, I feel like Rent definitely is in the latter category. Um, it feels like they've sort of gone with a general kind of fuzzy place and time scenario um, so that you're not watching it thinking, um, oh, this is 1989 in the way that you watch something like The Wedding Singer. And it it's very much like this is the 80s. The 80s is a big part of this show. And so stuff like the cell phone and the, you know, the technology, things like that, to me kind of just don't really register because it's part of this sort of, where are they? When are they? It's a little bit uh, nonspecific in a way that makes me feel like I'm not supposed to pay attention to it. However, I say that with the caveat that I saw Rent when I was so young and I've seen it so many times that I don't know if that would bother me now because, you know, to me, all the facts of Rent are the facts of Rent. So I, I kind of lost any ability to have my beginner's mind, if you would, when I'm looking at this, it, I can't possibly approach it fresh. So maybe I would watch it now and be like, what are you talking about? That there's like a cell phone while also there's all these audio answering machines and, you know, all of this stuff that clearly places it in an older time. Yeah, because I think some of that, like it does obviously want to feel like a different era, but in so many ways, it also feels so relevant and so contemporary today to me in so many ways. So I feel like that's part of, at least when I was interacting with it, that was part of my struggle was like, gosh, it, in some ways it feels like it could have been written today. And in other ways, it feels like completely so mid nineties. And then I'm, and then I'm like, well, wait, it's actually maybe 1989. So it like kind of lives in all of these things. And yet, like mm -hmm. we talked about in other segments, people don't like, seem to radically reinterpret rent it kind of lives as that original production did or in that vibe in that style in that general yeah. aura yeah yeah well ideally i mean i think you want to really root your story in 
the specificity of the characters, their specific stories, their specific emotional journeys. And ideally, no matter when that's happening, those will be timeless, which is why you can have something like La Boheme, which was written 100 years ago, and go see it at the Met. And you're not seeing like a glimpse into a historical period. You're seeing a very human story of suffering and loss and love. So um, that's definitely true for Rent. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean, though. It's It does feel like that the place and time in which it was created is so much a part of it and it also feels like now i mean i think the challenge of it now is that we there's just a lot more stuff you know like there's just the you know the internet is such a present thing in such a way phones are such a present thing like in some ways it's harder to be contemporary uh in the past 20 years than it was to you know it's, it's almost harder to basically have a story that takes place now that was supposed to be 20 years ago than it was to take place 20 years ago from 100 years ago because we have all these intrusive things in our lives that are very very present in our communications you know even having an answering machine that you can hear is something you can't possibly get anymore so it's like you know there's stuff that just feels like it would be tricky and even the politics of rent i mean going back and watching the closing night on broadway in 2008 it dawned on me that even that performance was in an entirely pre-Barack Obama world. I mean, he was just a politician seeking the nomination of the Democratic Party at that point. And to be watching a show that is supposedly set in 1989, which would be like, you know, George H.W. Bush, Ronald Reagan, 80s era consumerism, capitalism, it feels very different to me than even if it were taking place after the election of Bill Clinton, who's obviously liberal and these bohemian artists would probably be fans of Bill Clinton, um, particularly those who are suffering from AIDS since Ronald Reagan not addressing AIDS was such a controversy at the time. And the intersection of all of that is so interesting and so of its era. And yet we also have this incredible diversity of race, sexuality, gender, I mean, you name it, we have the such a almost buffet of options and display and uh, rooted, you know, characters. We have such a buffet of options and such a colorful and diverse group of people on stage. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because it is wild to think that this show was so effortlessly that in 1996, you know, where now we're in a world where there's a lot of pressure for increased representation on, on stages as there should be. But um, yeah, there's a lot about this show that is just really uh, impressive in that way. I mean, I love that the, the Black characters are the most educated and most upper class character. You know, there's stuff that there's never really made, they don't make a big point out of it, but it's kind of the world it presents is a really interesting one in that way. Right. I mean, because it just kind of is. That is what it is. It's being it authentic is. to itself and we just don't question it. Yeah. But it's funny, the fact that we do that is in itself something that I feel like we don't quite have the luxury to do now. Like, if you did that story now, there's some activism in the story in, in a kind of like what seems almost like a quaint way now. It's sort of Maureen's kind of strange <laughs> performance art 
rally piece you know is is, is that it, is it satire is it real i mean that's a whole other kind of conversation yeah um but you know she's she's doing this so that the homeless people aren't kicked out of this lot which is going to be turned into like a cyber studio you know um tom collins is beaten up at the beginning of it it's like it feels like if you were doing that story today you would have to be necessarily more aware of what's outside the the kind of bubble that these characters live in and it's funny too because i feel like if it were updated now <laughs> mark and roger would probably both work for a cyber studio in some way that that wouldn't be considered sort of selling out that it is clearly presented as then as this sort of like new technology that's preying on young people now it's just like such a fact of life well and in so many ways i i would point to a show like jagged little pill as the contemporary version of what rent is trying to do uh, or at least has the same aims and kind of contends with similar issues in a diverse way. But it it does blatantly call out a lot of those things. Uh, and I think it's also interesting in the case of Rent and should be noted, Jonathan Larson is a cis, white, straight man, which yeah. I think a lot of people don't know. He obviously did not die of AIDS. He did do a ton of work and had a ton of conversations with different kinds of people in creating rent and a lot of tough conversations that made it into the piece in the AIDS meeting, like we said, but uh, you know, he did strive for that kind of representation. And I think he achieves it. I mean, I don't think you can really, particularly, I mean, it, for 1996, like it, that's crazy. I mean, it, it's, it's such a different kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's a lot of authenticity to it. There's a lot of things that, other shows would not do. Like, I love when the homeless person gets really angry at them. You know, you don't see that a lot. You you would see something usually like a homeless person who's sort of a noble suffering person who's happy to be saved, you know, which is, is not true. That's denying homeless people their humanity in many ways. They can be angry and frustrated and lash out, you know, stuff like that. So it it's a very interesting and cool script. And I think, I don't think it would have been the success that it is if it didn't feel authentic. It passes the sniff test for young people and young people can, can root that out real quick. Absolutely. And I think it's also, that's a great kind of segue to when the show was on Fox somewhat recently, uh, I think discussion really started to pop up that maybe the show wasn't as great or wasn't finished and uh, could you know, use a little more revision, a little more looking at, or like could have stood uh, and been better from a little more of that revision. And I initially was in the camp of like, don't touch rent, rent is perfect. Like, no, stop. And then I, when I went back to it, I was like, oh, I do. Okay, I hear you. I do have some notes. I do have some thoughts. I do have some things. So where do you fall on that spectrum of rent is perfect where it is? or had Jonathan Larson been alive, there would have been further revisions to make it an even better piece. I mean, I think, for, first of all, nothing is ever really finished. You know, I think Broadway can be a finish line for people in in people's minds. And there is this sense of like, ah, oh, the Broadway version is the ultimate, but um, often what makes it there is, you know, it's, it's the crazy development process where things, you have all this time, you have not enough time, things change, it's, it's crazy. So there's lots of shows, I think, that make it to Broadway that are not um, in their perfect form. Um, there are a few that are in their perfect form when they get there. So um, with that being said, yeah, I, I definitely think there's some stuff about Rent that is a little, a little question marky to me. I mean, it, it's an, 
it's an oddly structured show in that, um, as you pointed out when we were talking about this earlier, it's, you know, the first act is 24 hours and the second act is the entire remainder of the year, which is a real time shift that's hard to, uh, hard to do because you've trained the audience in the first act to, to expect a certain time passing rhythm. And then you're like, psych, we're gonna jump from months and months, you know, like Mimi's gonna be getting, going to rehab that Benny's gonna pay for. And then the next time we're gonna hear about her, she, nobody can find her and she's living in a park and she's on drugs again. You know, it's like, there's huge jumps of storytelling. Um, and there's stuff that I just personally, I mean, personally, I had to sit next to my dad when I was 13. So this might be coloring that, but um, I've never liked the, the number contact. I've always felt like number contact is kind of ooky in a way that the rest of the show really isn't. And to me, honestly, the biggest example of this for me is that I, I feel like the end of the show is, is very odd. I personally feel like I don't need Mimi to magically come back to life, um, which obviously does not in La Boheme. And even if she's going to, I find the tone of it very, I just get whiplash a little bit. I feel like they've earned this big tragic death. And then you get this weird, like angel was in heaven. You know, it just becomes this like Hallmark Channel special all of a sudden. And I'm left there, you know, with my tears streaming down my face thinking, wait, what? You just had me kind of go through all this for this moment? I don't know. That's well, I, I think because we do differ on this and I because I, I, I understand my realism, realistic brain is like, this is ridiculous. She comes back. She saw Angel and a cow. And like, what are we going like? What are you talking about? Like she it seems to be knocking on death's door. And then some, she's like, let me form full sentences and tell you about how great whatever the heaven seems to be. Uh, but also on the flip side of that. I would say that the entire piece is about celebrating life and living life to the fullest. And, uh, and so you do get a very uplifting uh, emotional finale B, which is one of my favorite pieces of music in the whole show. And that resonating theme of no day, but today. And, but it does kind of feel like, I don't think you can have both of those things. And on some level, I think they make the right choice in making the ending uplifting. And that's not to say that you couldn't have your cake and eat it too, had the original writer been around and present, and maybe they could have found a way to make that work. Uh, but it does seem to me like quite a tall challenge, because I, I, as you kind of pointed out in our prep, that would take kind of a restructuring of the piece on a certain level. Yeah, I think it would take some some real work to make that feel a little bit more earned. And I do take your point very much about it is a hard place to go from in with an uplifting message. I believe Bohem just like the curtain comes down and everybody it, and the show is over after that because you really can't go far from there. So I do definitely see your point. I just wish it didn't feel so fakey fakey well, just, right it does yeah. it's not something that they could just note and change no after jonathan larson and i do think it's probably a good segue into the conversation about the lawsuit on, on that dramaturgical yeah. up because who has the right to say what 
Jonathan Larson would have done, what he did right, and who, you know, that whole conversation. So that's a not great way to intro it. But Annika, can you give us like a brief summary of the um, lawsuit that the dramaturg for the New York Theater Workshop development kind of brought up? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this is a fascinating thing that happened. So when the show was in development at New York Theater Workshop, this woman, Lynn Thompson, who is a professor and a dramaturg was hired to work with Jonathan Larson. Um, I believe I read somewhere that they had been considering getting him a book writer because it's it's a lot to ask one person to write all three parts of a musical. And there are very, very few people historically who can handle doing all three things equally well. And often the thing that is hardest for people is the book writing because that's such a titanic task. The unsung art of musical theater, the thing we probably don't even talk about enough on our on this podcast is the unsung heroes that are book writers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's almost no show that has made it into the canon that just has a really bad book, even if it has the best music in the world because storytelling is key. Um, but yeah, they're they're undersung. But anyway, so so Instead of hiring a book writer, they hired a dramaturg, which is obviously someone who can work with a writer and really help them along, give them a lot of support, um, but not actually write the show themselves. Dramaturgs are not writers. Lynn Thompson and Jonathan Larson worked together for almost a year. They worked really intensely together um, to shape the new version of Rent uh, that was going to be presented at New York Theater Workshop. Then obviously Jonathan Larson died. And afterwards, uh, Lynn Thompson and Jim Nicola, who's the head of New York Theater Workshop, and Michael Greif, they basically took what Jonathan Larson had written in previous drafts and cut stuff and cobbled together this new form, um, saying that indeed uh, the intention was to keep everything that Jonathan Larson would have wanted because they felt pretty confident that they knew what that was because they had all been collaborating so intensely. So later that year, after it had gone to Broadway and after it was clear that it was going to be a pretty mega success, Lynn Thompson sued Jonathan Larson's estate claiming that her contributions went beyond that of just a dramaturg who is a non-active member of the creative team, basically, who never writes something. Um, and that because she had contributed not only overarching story structure it, things, but also specific lines, specific lyrics, that she uh, deserved 16% of the royalties from the Larson estate. And which would of course be for something like Rent, a huge astronomical amount of money ultimately. And basically, although she won in court uh, the recognition that she had contributed some parts of the show, um, she did not win her ultimate lawsuit for this 16% of the royalties. Um, and then she did not win an appeal. And then she ended up settling with the Larson estate for terms we don't really know what they were. And it's really an interesting one because when you're a dramaturg, you are a consultant and there is a sort of code that you work in which is that like a therapist and we kind of joke that we are show therapists or writer therapists um we are there to ultimately be soundboard sounding boards to be active listeners to be people who reflect back our own feelings about what we have seen or things that don't make sense in the script or um 
things that aren't quite working in the hopes that we can help the writer to uh, find the correct path to to making it the best possible thing. It's sort of the the yin to the yang of I am the audience representative. I can see this clearly. I can tell you what your intentions are that are not being felt by me um, and helping you to find a way to, to realize those intentions. Um, you're never a writer though. Although I will say the line gets very fine sometimes because sometimes when you're in the trenches with shows, you are throwing out ideas, you're, you're spitballing, you're doing stuff that uh, gets very close to a writing session. Um, so I understand both parts of this. I understand that it's sort of terrifying and bad for dramaturgy as a whole that a dramaturg couldn't come forward and say, guess what? I am a writer because I did all this stuff because there is that safety in knowing that a dramaturg is not a writer. And like a therapist is not going to go out and tell you all the, tell people all the details of your therapy sessions, a dramaturg is not a writer. And so you're protected by that. But at the same time, I also really understand the frustration of a person who is an active member of the creative team who is really working with Jonathan Larson very closely. By his own admission, he told a lot of people how key she had been, um, who then watches the show become a mega, 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 mega hit and has to know that even though her contribution was invaluable to the shape of the final show, she ultimately is going to get no more than her fee, which was like $50 a week. I think she got $10,000 ultimately. So um, I understand also very much why she had to go the route that she did. I, I think ultimately I come down in the sort of, I would have thought there would maybe be a happy medium somewhere between that she could have been acknowledged for her work and shared in the profits in some small way without having to go as far as, as, as a lawsuit claiming to be a co-writer, but I don't know, but it's a very interesting thing to look at. Well, and I think it's important to note, too, that I think if Jonathan Larson were alive, we probably wouldn't be having this discussion. And I think it's one of those situations where, <clears throat> while I understand the precedent setting that it can be a little dangerous, you know, I don't think dramaturgs go into all of this expecting every show to be, you know, a mega hit like this. But on the back end, you know, if it is successful, I think good humans, and someone will probably pull this up, if and when I ever have a mega hit. But good humans would say, hey, I I didn't get here by myself. And I will share in my profits with the people who did help this become the success that it is and, and do the right thing. And I think by all intents and purposes, Jonathan Larson would absolutely have been that person. So uh, while we don't know the terms that were settled out of court, I I don't think there are still hard feelings about it, I would imagine. Um, but who knows? We don't know, frankly. So, um, But it certainly is an interesting discussion and uh, something that we talk about with actors and writers and directors and royalty pools a lot. And there's been a lot of conversation about that recently, particularly with actors. Um, but it's it's just interesting to, to note that as a part of, um, you know, the show's journey. Certainly. And I feel like it's not going to be the last example of something like this because the field of dramaturgy has been uh, growing so much, has been finding its feet so much in the past few years that I think we're probably going to get to a place where we have to better define what a dramaturg is on the creative team. And I should say too, it really depends on the role the dramaturg has. A lot of dramaturgs are just research dramaturgs. I don't want to say just, but they're providing sort of historical research on the first day and then they're 
not part of the process. And obviously that's not someone who necessarily feels like they should be a part of it, as opposed to someone who says, you know, why don't you write a song about finding this one song that you want to sing rather than a song about writer's block, which is what apparently she suggested and other stuff like that, which obviously are suggestions that really did shape the piece and really make it great. And now it's time for our favorite things. These are a few of my favorite things. Where we share some of our favorite things from Rent. So, Annika, who is your favorite character in Rent? I love Mark. I've just always loved Mark. Okay. He was my runner-up. I literally wrote first runner-up Mark. But that's for very specific reasons because I kind of look like Anthony Rapp. <laughs> that is true. I, so why is Mark your favorite? Because I always like a character who is sort of, um, I'm always drawn to the kind of narrator characters. And Mark is very much the narrator character who I think um, ultimately kind of has to examine his own role in things in that way. Maybe not to the degree that perhaps he should. I feel like he a little bit gets lost in the second act, but um, there's something very moving to me about being the person who observes and sort of steps outside of everything to, to, to judge and to see and to watch, which is very much something that I do. Um, and then has trouble kind of connecting. So I think, I think it just feels to me uh, like a really kind of interesting variation on a narrator character and the character that kind of resonates with me the most. Sure. Runner up was Joanne. <laughs> oh, okay. Interesting. Because so, my favorite, without question, I, I was doing this. I was, I was prepping. I was like, oh, easy. Angel. Angel rocks. Angel's incredible. Uh, just, we stay on Angel. We, Angel is perfect. With, for me. I, I Today for you is such a great number and like could almost be my favorite song, but like Angel, Angel, Angel. Angel is a fantastic character. And I totally understand also why that was the part that, that won um, Wilson Jermaine Her Heredia, the, the Tony, because it's, it's just a great part to play. Also, Tom Collins is a great part. Yes. I mean, they're all great parts. They're it's all great, great parts. They're all great parts. But, I, but Angel, to me, is the heart of the show. And I, I mean, I love Angel. So Yeah. Yeah. So what's your favorite song? I mean, it's such a cliche, but how can you not go with Love You Bohème? It's so. It was mine. Energy. Too. I mean, I love Evo M. First off, it's the perfect song to sing in the car with friends. Um, but also the runner up and, and could also be my answer would be I'll cover your reprise because I think everyone wants something that beautiful sung at their funeral. It's yeah. such a moving. That reprise is so moving to me. Yeah. But, you know, it's funny. The cliche answer here is probably Seasons of Love, which we really haven't talked about, which is like the, sh the number that really catapulted into the yeah. popular consciousness because of the show. I mean, I think it's, I think it's almost impossible for you to not hear those opening chords and immediately know what is about to uh, come out. And also clearly famously giving everyone the fun fact that there are 525,600 minutes in a year. Yeah. No one's ever going to get that mouth wrong ever again. <laughs> it's, it's real. So yeah. what's your favorite miscellaneous thing about rent? My favorite miscellaneous thing about Rent is um, maybe not totally fair because it's not uh, Rent created, but um, there was a tweet that went around a few years ago by a woman who talked about how her school had done Rent, probably a completely legal production, but they didn't they didn't want to talk about AIDS, which was they was, was deemed inappropriate by the 
school's administration. So instead they did rent, but everybody had diabetes. <laughs> um, what? Yes. And this made me laugh so hard. It makes me laugh every time I think about it. It makes me laugh more when you think about actually seeing the show Rent when they're talking about everybody having Can you imagine? I mean, okay, first off, that's wild on so many levels. The fact that I'm not saying that Rent is like the most appropriate show to perform with high schoolers. I'm not saying that by any means. But I don't think AIDS is the reason that we shouldn't be performing it with high schoolers. Like, that's, that's, I reject that outright. I think just a general rule is if you have to change one of the major plot elements of the show, then you should not be doing, you know, just wait until you can do it with adults. I I just can't. I mean, who knows if it's actually really true, but um, God, I hope it is because... I just would pay so much money to see that production. I think my favorite miscellaneous thing is just the like hours, the shared hours that I've spent like with my family listening to rent, like my family all loves rent. So we would listen to it in the car and with friends and like things, just the community around rent, I think is really like meaningful. And uh, you know, I, it's just, I, for that, like the impact that it's had on the culture at large, I think is really great. And as like, I feel like I answer that a lot of times when it comes to miscellaneous thing on the show. But I do think with Rent, it is a very like special, like people who get Rent and like Rent, I'm like, yeah, you're my people, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it it, it was so important in so many people's lives, uh, such a specific part. And that will bring us to our next to last segment, Corner of the Sky. Gotta find my corner of the sky. where we talk about this show's place in the musical theater canon. Uh, So uh, for as much as we've talked about the success of the show and its impact and all the things, I think for me, it's Corner of the Sky is that the 1990s in American musical theater was really a what's happening with our medium type uh, time. Uh, I think there's a kind of dearth of successful original things that are happening and in a lot of ways the most successful musical theater that was happening was happening in Hollywood at Disney Animated Studios. I mean you've got the Howard Ashman, Alan Menken collaborations there that are really like pumping uh, life into American musical theater but a lot of the things in most of the 90s are like it's kind of a bleak time for Broadway I think um, and the commercialization is becoming so clear with Disney coming to Broadway and the Disneyfication of New York and all that. And I feel like it, Rent is like a rapid shift back to say, like, to claim the American musical as, like, and claim what Broadway can be and what musical theater can be. And it's contemporary issues and rock score and just that energy that comes with it. But what do you think is its corner of the sky, Annika? Yeah, I mean, I think it certainly ushered in a lot of different things um in terms of its style certainly i mean i think it was the first time we saw those kind of uh big mics the the kind of rock concert mics worn the the kind of bar set the minimalist bar set um but to me i think it's just 
it's such a good example of how cynicism can be um, unsuccessful. You know, there, there's something about the way that rent was created, the authenticity of its it's kind of hard scrabble beginnings. The fact that they found all of these people who are not really theater actors to be these people, the, the sound of it, the look of it, the whole thing at every, at every moment, the fact that Jonathan Larson was going to these groups to learn about what it was like to, to live with AIDS, you know, it, there was such authenticity in every moment of it. It was never, it doesn't feel like it was created to be a Broadway hit. Um, at all. And because of that, it resonated with people so strongly and became a mega hit. And I think a lot of times there is this sense of things that are created to be a Broadway hit, this cynical sense of like, well, audiences like this and they like this and they like this and thus A plus B equals C and we'll just give them what they want and this will be a hit. And, you know, I think again and again, what we see is that what people ultimately fall in love with in a really, really deep way is a, a really well-told human story, told in whatever way that is. And um, in this case, it was that, you know, incredible rock music and this this very unusual way that it was sort of put together. But um, I think that's that's in many ways its legacy. It it speaks about things that people haven't really been talking about that that much in this format. And it did it in just such a real way that it resonated for years and years and years and years and years. I think also, I mean, because I think those are companion analyses in a lot of ways. Totally. Over commercialization of Broadway and what that is and the theme park nature of it all. And yeah, uh, the critique leveled at the at the Disney musical factory, for lack of a better term. I think the other thing to point out is I know we've kind of said this in other ways, but I think it's hard to understate the importance of the diversity that Rent brings to Broadway, not only in style, but also in representation on race, sexuality, gender expression. I mean, you name it, as we've said, I think for 1996, that really is groundbreaking and changes the perception of what Broadway can be and who Broadway can be for. And I think that is really important, especially because it got so much national attention and it was this phenomenon. And to have that diversity of voice, I think is really, really important and amazing about the show. Well, I think that about wraps it up for our deep dive into Rent, which brings us to our final segment, What Comes Next? What Comes Next? Where Annika is gonna give us a fun fact hint about our next show. So Annika, what is our clue for next episode? Well, for our next episode, we're gonna dive into a show that has a movie adaptation. And for this movie adaptation, Frank Sinatra's agent called the director trying to get him an audition, which was uh, rejected for reasons that will be very obvious when you listen to the next episode. I will just say I was astounded by this answer and had it been the million dollar question on who wants to be a millionaire i probably would have gone home with no money i would have gotten it wrong it's astounding yeah it's a real bad idea so so you have to tune in to hear just how bad that idea is indeed bye everyone bye everyone 
This podcast has been a presentation of Goodspeed Musicals, produced by the artistic staff and edited by me, Michael Fling. Our podcast would also not be possible without the generous support of the Sennheiser Electric Corporation, the Burry Frederick Foundation, Webster Bank, and the Richard P. Garmany Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. If you enjoyed the show and would like to financially support Goodspeed, please visit www.goodspeed.org. See you next time!